Let's continue to worship together by taking God's word and turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think I've told you on a couple of occasions that um, in my younger years I was a roofer. I've shared that with you, haven't I? You know, there we go. Brian remembers anyway. Maybe that was a private conversation, Brian. I don't know. But uh, I guess my last couple of years of high school and all through college, that's what I did during the summers. And even when we were first married, I was a roofer and uh, worked for a fellow in the church I grew up in. And he employed several of the young guys. He had maybe five or six guys working for him. And uh, you can imagine... Eight, nine years of roofing, Um, we had some stories to tell, some adventures as young men. And there was one particular occasion. We were working in the the city of Toronto, right downtown in the heart of the city. And uh, in this neighborhood where the houses were, I guess they were two stories, very steep roofs. And they were very close together, maybe three, four feet between the roofs. And you could almost jump from the one to the next. And uh, this fellow's house had been leaking like a sieve. And um, the roof boards were all rotten. Not, don't think in terms of sheets of plywood, but the old roof boards that are about 8, 10, 12 feet long. And so we had to tear up all the old shingles and tear up all the roof boards. And Andy, the boss, he very clearly stated this very clearly. Look, guys, there's a house on this side three or four feet away. There's a, nothing on the other side. So when it comes to throwing off the old shingles and throwing off those roof boards, I know it's a hassle. We have to walk all the way to the other side of the roof, but let's walk over there with this stuff and throw it off there. You know what's coming, don't you? Halfway into the job. It was a hot, sticky morning. I don't know. I tore this roof board off of this roof, and I just decided to let it go between the two houses, and it was like slow motion. This thing, 10 feet long, landed on one end and stood there for about four or five seconds. And I was begging it, please fall this way, please fall this way, please fall this way. That way it went right through a window. All right. Andy heard the crash. He looked at me, said a number of things. In the midst of it all, he asked me what? What were you thinking? What were you thinking? He was not asking me if I had misunderstood what he had told me. He was not asking me if I lacked something cognitively or intellectually, if there was some information that was perhaps out of reach. No, in asking me that question, what were you thinking? He was drawing my attention to what? The complete inconsistency between what I knew and what I had just done. Now, Paul does exactly the same thing in this epistle. We went down this road just a few weeks ago, and I believe at the time I mentioned to you that he uses the question, do you not know? Do you not know? And that's, what are you thinking? Do you not know? He uses it nine times. I read the epistle yesterday, and I actually found ten times. So 10 times he uses it. Maybe there are more. So I'm going to say he uses it at least 10 times in this letter. Do you not know? In chapter 6, he uses it six 
times. So six of the 10 occasions in which he asks his audience, do you not know, are found in this chapter. Three times in the verses I am now about to read for you. So listen for them. Do you not know? He's going to ask it three times in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 1 through to verse 11. Here we go. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Did you hear the question three times? Verse two, verse three, verse nine. Do you not know what's going on? He tells us at the outset of the chapter, verse one, return there with me. When one of you has a grievance against another. And so there are these grievances disputes. He does not give us any details. We do not know the nature of these disputes. We do know because he tells us in the following verse that they are of a trivial nature. All right. In other words, these are not mountains worth dying on. These are of a trivial nature, but they have led to these grievances, these disputes. And what happens? Does he dare go to law Now, notice the two categories that Paul introduces right here at the outset. Before the unrighteous, instead of the saints. And so he establishes these two categories right at the outset. He wants them to be forefront in our thinking. That there is on the one hand, this group whom he identifies as the unrighteous. He's going to refer to them later as unbelievers. He's going to say later that they do not inherit the kingdom of God. And there is on the other hand, this second group, the righteous. They are believers. They do inherit the kingdom of God. 
And sadly, occasionally, or in the case of the church at Corinth, rather frequently, disputes and grievances arise within this second group, among the saints. And rather than resolve these problems, these trivial, minor issues themselves, what are they doing? They're actually taking these cases before that first group, the unrighteous. And in so doing, what are they demonstrating? That they do not know. They actually do know. They do know the truth, but they are acting in a manner that is inconsistent with what they know. Three truths in particular. Number one, it's right there in verse two. Do you not know? Here it is. That the saints, this group right here, believers, those who are part of the kingdom of God, do you not know that they will what? Judge the world. And so Christian, did you know that you are going to judge the world? What is that going to look like? I really don't know because Paul never tells us, scripture never tells us. But the Bible certainly does hint at this. Listen, for example, to what we read in Matthew 19, 27. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We read in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 4, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. You know, important for us to understand, we are kings. Why? Because Christ is a king. We are priests. Why? You get the drift. Because Christ is a, the priest. And we too are judges. Why? Because Christ is the judge. By virtue of our union with him, we share in these offices of Christ as king, priest, and judge. And there is a judgment day coming when we will actively participate with him in his judgment of this world. Again, details, we don't have them. Because the Bible doesn't give them. Let's not dabble in the hypothetical. If you go home and you have your lunch this afternoon and you start to raise this question and want to talk about, boy, I wonder what this is going to look like. You're missing the boat. It's not the point. It's not to be speculative. This is actually to be very practical. What does Paul say? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, verse 2, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And so he is arguing from the greater to the lesser. The fact that this is so, the fact that this is the way it will be, the fact that the day is coming when we will participate in Christ's judgment of the world, that means that surely in pre at the present, in the kingdom of God right now among the saints, when these trivial issues arise, we have the ability, the competency to deal with these things and to judge them. Secondly, he asks, verse 3, do you not know, here's the second truth, that we are to judge angels. Wow. Had you ever thought about that? You and me. 
I was looking at Ike when I said that. Ike Tallman, Ike, you and me, we're going to judge angels. What's going on here? Well, we know all about the fall. We know about Lucifer's rebellion. And we know that he took a host of the angelic beings with him. And we know some of them that are, all, are already imprisoned, but others are very active. And we read, for example, as in Matthew 8, isn't it? In the land of the Gadarenes, where the Lord Jesus disembarks from the boat. Uh, that man comes, hurls himself, prostrates himself before the Lord Jesus. He's possessed by legion. And what does he cry out? I know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? It's frightening, isn't it? There is an appointed time. There is an appointed day of judgment. When not only will the Lord Jesus judge the world, he will judge the heavenly hosts and all those angels who joined Lucifer, the devil, in his rebellion. By virtue of our oneness with him, we will be active participants in that judgment. Again, there you are, you're sitting there at lunch, maybe, I don't know, the big cup or whatever. Don't dabble in the speculative. It's not his point. Scripture is rather silent on this as to exactly what this will look like. And it isn't Paul's point to dabble in the speculative, but in the concrete. Knowing this, verse 3, knowing that we are to judge angels, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? And so again, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. And then the third truth, skip down to verse 9. It actually encompasses really verses 6 right through to 11. But he throws out the question in the ninth verse, do you not know what? That the unrighteous, he's described the saints in the first point. The saints will judge the world. He's described the saints in the second point. The saints will judge angels. Now he reverts to this second category, the unrighteous. Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What has this got to do with these disputes within the church at Corinth? Follow through his train of thought three points. We just made the first one. Here's the first point we need to get based on verses 9 and 10. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you know, you know this, you know it to be a fact that the unrighteous are outside the kingdom. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know that's true. And so this first category over here, the unrighteous unbelievers, they're not in and they will not possess nor inherit the kingdom of God. The second point I want you to get is this, is that you know, you know in verse 11, you know that you were once like them, but now you aren't. Look at what he says in the 11th verse. And such were some of you, you were among the unrighteous, but now what? You were washed. Your sins were forgiven. Washed away by the blood of Christ. You were sanctified. Set apart from this world. Set apart from the unrighteous. And set apart to God. 
And you were justified. You were acquitted of all guilt. Acquitted of all condemnation. You were declared just and righteous in the sight of God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so you know that the unrighteous, that group over there, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, secondly, who you once were and who you now are. You are the saints. You're not among the unrighteous. And so his third point is what? Go all the way back to verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The church at Corinth. Just based on those few verses right there, they have failed glaringly in four ways. Catch these. Get these quickly. Number one, they are fighting with each other. Look at the start of verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Look at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So that's problem number one, that these disputes and grievances even exist to begin with. The second way they fail is this, that they not only fight with each other, but they then lack the spiritual wisdom to deal with their disputes. Look what Paul says in the fifth verse. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Thirdly, they fail. Why? Because they refuse to approach these disputes in a way that reflects the gospel of Christ crucified. And so look at the question Paul asks in the middle of verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded than to bring your problems and present them before the unrighteous? And this leads to the fourth way in which they have failed. They are airing their dirty laundry in public before the unrighteous. Again, the sixth verse, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Are you following him? Do you not know what? That that group over there, the unrighteous unbelievers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not know that you were once numbered among them, but you are not anymore? You are the saints. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, and you have been justified then why is it that you are bringing those internal disputes and grievances that exist among you before that group to resolve them? What an embarrassment is what Paul is saying. I recall years ago when Allison and I lived in, in Portugal, Allison's parents came for a visit. This is maybe 1997, 98 Seems like a long time ago. I guess it was in many ways. And uh, we picked them up at the airport there in Porto. And we took them to our apartment in Santa Maria da Feira. And when we entered the city, my mother-in-law, well, she was struck by many things because Portugal is quite different from Canada, obviously. Uh, one thing that got her attention, though, was the laundry. Because your average household in Portugal doesn't have a dryer. They don't use them. What do they do? They hang out their laundry. And so all these apartment buildings... You open up a window, and there attached to the wall, 
just beneath your window is a clothesline. And you would wash your clothes and you would hang them out. And sometimes people would end up doing the laundry, it seemed, on the same day of the week. And you drive by an apartment building 12 stories high and it was just covered with laundry. And my, my mother-in-law was aghast because people were hanging their unmentionables out. <laughs> Kids, you can go home at lunch and ask your parents, what are unmentionables? <laughs> hanging out their unmentionables. Airing their dirty laundry in public. This is what's going on. This is Paul's concern. Why are you airing your dirty laundry in public? Why are you bringing these tensions and these disputes and these grievances, which are, again, in his language, absolutely trivial? Why are you bringing them before the unrighteous? Do you not know who you are? You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You are the saints. Act like it. That is Paul's point. I suppose we don't need to really go any further, do we? That's the point for us, is it not? Uh, sadly, at times, these kinds of grievances arise. Uh, sadly, at times, I mean, I guess this is the great lesson. We are saints. We are Christians. We are heirs of the kingdom of God. We are members of that kingdom right now, the spiritual expression of that kingdom. We are members of a local church, the local expression of the body of Christ. And we number ourselves among those who have been washed. Our sins have been forgiven, cleansed, washed away. We're among those who are sanctified, set apart from the present age, set apart from the old creation. And we are now part of the members of Christ's body and set apart to God. And we are justified, declared just, acquitted, forgiven, righteous in the sight of God. Are we behaving like it? Yes, true enough. These disputes, these grievances shouldn't arise given who we are, our identity. But they do, sadly, arise. And there are three great lessons here, aren't there or not? The first is this, when they arise, we are to immediately seek out those with wisdom to help us resolve them. That's obvious from the text. Secondly, when they do arise, we are to approach them in a way that reflects the gospel of Christ crucified. In other words, am I willing to be wronged for Christ's sake? Thirdly, when they do arise, we don't publicize them before the unrighteous, thereby bringing the gospel and the church into disrepute. I think that's the text. I think that is the sense of the text, and I'm convinced that is the application of the text. A word of clarification before I proceed with some questions. A very needful, unfortunately, a very needful word of clarification. Um, here it is, and let me ease into it by way of, a, of an illustration, a case in point. Again, many moons ago, Allison and I had a very unfortunate experience with a neighbor. This is back, not here, it's back there. And I confronted this neighbor. Uh, he was a member of a church in town. I then went to the pastor of that church. And I then went to the local branch of the Ontario Provincial Police to report what had happened. All right? Because it was a crime. The pastor of the church took issue with what I was going to do. That is, go to the police. Why? He appealed to this text. And his appeal was what? 
We should resolve these disputes internally. We should not air our dirty laundry before the public. We should not bring the gospel into disrepute by making this known. This was his take. I strongly disagreed with him, and I stated to him that he was misunderstanding and misapplying this text. Paul does not have breaking the law in view. He has grievances and disputes that are of a trivial nature. The text must be interpreted, for example, in light of what Paul says in Romans 13. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And I felt the need this past week to insert this word of clarification here before as a, as a church because of the confusion that a misunderstanding and misapplication of this text has created within large segments of the church or even the professing church. And so a case in point is the Roman Catholic Church. If you, unless you've been living with your head in the sand the last couple of months, you know exactly what has been going on in the Roman Catholic Church and how there has been unbelievable sin historically here in the United States within that church and it was all swept under the carpet. We will deal with this internally, move him there, move him over here, and we'll deal with it ourselves, but not the domain of the civic authorities. Many Protestant churches have done the same, and even today, many evangelical churches are doing the same. And in so doing, they are creating chaos, sullying their testimony, and damaging the innocent. So, I'm going to speak bluntly so that we're clear on this as a church. God forbid it. We should be praying to this end. God forbid it. But if ever in this church there was a case of spousal abuse, physical abuse, if ever there was a case of sexual abuse, of physical abuse toward a child, something of that nature, we would not deal with it internally. We would be calling the sheriff because a crime has been committed and we would not run and hide behind this text. Oh, we're not supposed to make these things public because Paul's not talking about these things. He is talking about trivial matters Grievances that arise among the saints. He did this, she did that, he said this, she said that, he looked at me the wrong way, she spoke with me the wrong way, and as a result, boom, the bomb goes off and there's these grievances. Well, we're going to run to the unrighteous. This is going to become a legal matter in order to settle this. And Paul is saying, what an embarrassment given who you are, the washed, the sanctified, and the justified. But let's not misunderstand, misinterpret, or misapply this text 
to cases for which it was never intended. And if the church had heeded this counsel historically, especially in just the last few decades, oh, the problems it would have avoided and how it would have preserved the testimony of Christ and the testimony of the gospel by dealing with these things faithfully, appropriately, and biblically. That's a word of clarification. I'm off on a tangent. Well, it's not really a tangent. It's pertinent because I've heard it more times than I care to remember an abuse of this text. What is it saying? What isn't it saying? And I trust we are very clear and able to cross our T's and dot our I's and get our punctuation correct when it comes to our handling and our application of this text. Some questions now. You might have some questions for me, and that's fine. You can email or call me sometime during the week, and I'd be happy to discuss that further with you. But some questions. I want us to feel this text. I want us to feel the weight of it, where, where exhortation is needed, correction is needed, comfort, consolation is needed, and I'm going to do so by putting before you five questions. And not all of these questions might apply to you, but I'm convinced that at least one and in all likelihood two or three, if you listen carefully, take stock, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that there is something in most of these questions for us. So I want this text now to come alive in terms of our application. So here's question number one. Are we clear, folks, are we clear on our condition before God? You are either a saint or you are among the unrighteous. Are you clear on that? You are in one camp or the other. Paul makes that clear. Ninth verse. Do you not know that the unrighteous unbelievers will not, will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Are we clear? I mean crystal clear on our condition before God and our standing before God. Can you in good conscience, can I in good conscience, publicly declare this day I am among the saints. Or I look at this list, a list which is not intended to be exhaustive, but illustrative, I suppose, exemplary, I suppose. If I look at this list, I have to be honest with myself and own up to the fact that I'm actually numbered among the unrighteous, meaning I will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it may only be one person, I don't have anybody in mind. I'm just, maybe one person. It could be 10 people here, for all I know. I want you to take a look at that list, and I want you to be honest with yourself, and I want you to consider carefully what Paul says. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what you say you believe. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you said the sinner's prayer. It doesn't matter how theologically orthodox you are. It doesn't matter what a great philanthropist you are. It doesn't matter how committed to the church you are. 
the unrighteous, and he clearly defines them, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, I know that is, comes across perhaps as harsh, but perhaps in actual fact this morning, it might be the most loving thing I can say to draw a clear line of delineation between the, those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are outside of the kingdom of God so that there is no confusion. You are not misled. You are not deceiving yourselves into thinking I am something that in actual fact I am not. It leads me to the second question. It's this. Are we being deceived? Is it possible I'm being deceived? Is it possible you're being deceived? Where do I get that from? It's right there again in the ninth verse. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Right? He didn't have to insert that there. He could have said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither the sexually moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. But he doesn't go straight into the list. He inserts this command. Do not be deceived. Which means what? In the context of the Corinthian church. They were being deceived that someone was actually saying to them, what? You can be washed, sanctified, justified. You can be a Christian. You can be a saint. And this stuff's okay. It doesn't matter. It's just stuff done in the body, the flesh anyway. As long as you're sincere and you really love the Lord and your heart is good before the Lord, this is all good. It's no no problem. And Paul says, do not be deceived. We are vulnerable to deception on this issue. Why? Number one, the weight of, of societal pressure. Oh, we want to be accepted. Number two, the allure of personal pleasure. We want to indulge the flesh. So do not be deceived. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why do I go to that one? You know, I go to that one. Just think in terms of legalization of cannabis. Some states, right? in an an entire country that shall remain nameless, the legalization of cannabis. And and I'd already heard this line well before the legalization of this drug, and I'm hearing it even more now as I engage with different people. Well, it's legal. What what harm does it do? Not harming anybody. It's just something done in the flesh, something done in the body. I mean, I know I shouldn't smoke this stuff and then go operate a chainsaw. I know that wouldn't be wise. I know it does, you know, it does a little something there. But, you know, it doesn't really do any harm. And the big picture of things, oh, the one, no worse than caffeine is the one I love to, you know, you get that kind of response. And all these, there's this effort to justify a sin. My friend, if you fall into that category, I pray no one else does here. Maybe, I don't know. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You know, homosexuality is an obvious one, isn't it? Right there at the end of verse 9. Men who practice homosexuality. I suppose this is probably the most prevalent, the one we are going to face the most in the coming year or two or next 10 years, certainly the up-and-coming generation. Um, Those who now tell us that homosexuality is okay. Uh, What was his name? Matt Vines. David Vines? No, Matthew Vine. Matthew Vine, God and the gay Christian. Uh, I don't know if you've read it or if you've been aware of it, but unbelievably influential now within evangelical circles. And Vine, Matthew Vine, is basically arguing, look, the Bible never bans homosexuality. What, what the Bible speaks against is immorality, whether it is heterosexual or homosexual. It's immorality. That is sexual activity that takes place outside of the boundaries, the bounds, the confines of a loving Covenantal 
monogamous relationship. So as long as the homosexual relationship is a marriage, right? It's a covenant relationship and it's monogamous, just like a heterosexual couple. Well, when, when, when the Bible speaks against immorality, or even, I guess, the practice of homosexuality, what it means is that which takes place outside of that kind of relationship, which is now accepted. And this is, a, is an argument that we are hearing more and more in our day. Just, just, be, just a side note, be aware, when these sorts of things arise, basically there are, two, there are always two steps in the process. The first step is this, to cast doubt on the context or the meaning of words. You need to learn this. As when, when people want to change something, uh, to make it more agreeable with their own opinion when it comes to scripture, that's the first step. You need to cast doubt on the context of what's being said and the meaning of words. Even though it's been understood by the church for 2,000 years in a certain way, they've been wrong for 2,000 years. We now know, because we're enlightened, that the context dictates this or words really mean actually something different. And then the second appeal, appeal will always be this, and this is what gets a lot of people, but it's so loving. It's so loving. And to speak against this is to be what? Unloving. And my admonition to you, the people of God, is what? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Oh, we could go through each of the ones in that list. The question is simply this. Are we being deceived or do we understand? In the words of Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Oh, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Here's a third question. Are we overwhelmed? A little more encouraging, I pray. Are we overwhelmed by what God has done for us? 11th verse, obviously. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Oh, the forgiveness of sins. All my sins washed away, put away from me. Whereby God declares, I will remember your sins no more. I will not hold them against you. I will not hold them, you accountable for them. I will not deal with you as a sinner, but I am washing you, cleansing you. And we're sanctified, taken, set apart, and made a member of the body of Christ, a co-heir with Christ and an heir of God, and justified whereby there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does it overwhelm you? Do you remember that thing a couple months ago? It was Thailand, wasn't it? That soccer team, those boys? Remember that? Trapped in the caverns? And the water was too high for them to get out, and they had to go in a scuba team to get them out. Can you imagine what it must have been like for them to have that rescue team come, put all the gear on them, lead them out through the caverns, up into the daylight to walk again on firm ground, firm earth, and to know they were safe. How overwhelming that must have been. That ought to be our daily experience as Christians, isn't it? When we think of our condition, what we were, and what God has now done for us and made us, look at what we read at the end of verse 11, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the fourth question. Are we embracing our calling to be a community, grace, community, church? Are we embracing our calling to be a community that gives the world a glimpse of the future kingdom? 
So I'm thinking again of verse 6. Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Your conduct is an embarrassment. That's what Paul is saying there. It's embarrassing. You're bringing disrepute upon the church, the gospel, and therefore the name of Christ. We need to understand that God has saved us for a purpose, that he might cleanse us, yes, he might wash us, he might make us holy and blameless before him, and we are called to communicate to others by our lives, through our conduct, the very character, the image of God, his goodness and his righteousness. And this ought to be evident in, I suppose, perhaps the most obvious way, relationally. And so do we know the power of the gospel and the power of Christ crucified when it comes to our relationships? Do we know the power of Christ crucified when it comes to our disputes and our grievances? Do we know the power of Christ crucified when it comes to how we respond to those people who disagree with us and rub us the wrong way? Paul writes to the Philippians, do nothing, absolutely nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul could have cited himself right there in this context, couldn't he? That was basically the problem each one looking for his own interests. And the result, these trivial disputes and grievances. No, we are to embrace our calling to be a community that gives the world a glimpse of the future kingdom. Here's the fifth final question. With this, we will conclude. Are we affected? Are we affected by the fact that we are saints? Why do I conclude with this question? I choose to conclude with this one because I suppose it comes as no surprise. This is the main issue in the church at Corinth. If you were to ask me, Stephen, in in, in as few words as possible, as simply as, as possible, just break it down for me, give me one compact sentence. What is going on with this church? What is wrong with the church at Corinth? Here it is. The Corinthian believers are unaffected, unaffected by the fact that they are saints. That is it. It explains everything in this epistle. These individuals who are washed, sanctified, and cleansed, and justified. These people who are one with the Lord Jesus Christ. These who are the heirs of God's kingdom. They are unaffected by the fact that they are saints. This is who they are. This is their identity. They know it, but they aren't acting like it. And the text, their example, leads us to ask, to ponder, and to answer a very simple question, does it not? Do we act like it? Are we affected by the fact that we are saints, or to put it in slightly different terms, do we really know who we are? Our Heavenly Father, may you give us a greater appreciation of our identity in Christ Jesus, what it means to be a follower of your Son, the Lord Jesus. 
We pray that our hearts might be humbled as we consider your great grace and mercy toward us. And we pray that our hearts might be encouraged as we take stock and consider all of those benefits and blessings that accrue to us by virtue of our position in Christ. Bless this text to us, your word. We pray that it has come alive as we have studied it together. And by your spirit now, we pray that you would incline our hearts toward it, that we would live accordingly, and that your name might be glorified and your people edified as a result. In the matchless name of Christ, we ask it. Amen.